noticed here on Sunday mornings, we have a lot of children and young adults that attend this church, that attend this church, and it's a blessing. Uh, the Bible talks about how children are a blessing from the Lord, and one of the great opportunities we have at this church is to help our students see the glory and beauty and treasure of knowing Jesus Christ. And so I think having our students up here on a somewhat regular basis just to hear from them is a good reminder to be praying for our students here at this church and our kids, that they would see the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. So uh, glad to hear from them this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 4. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, You should know that we are in the middle of a series on the book of James here at Fremont E. Free. We like to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. This morning, that means that we've landed in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. One of the beauties of preaching through God's Word and the way that we do is that we're forced to deal with a variety of different topics. And this morning, that means that we're talking about some quarrels and fights that are taking place in the church. And it's an interesting topic. Hopefully, it'll be helpful for us this morning. Let's pray, and we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for we thank you for your grace to us in giving us your Word. We thank you that we have the privilege of every week gathering and hearing the good news about Jesus. As we just heard from our students a minute ago, there are many around the world who will go their whole life and not hear the good news about Christ. We do not have that problem here. We get to hear about the good news every time we gather on a Sunday morning. We get to hear the good news that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. But Lord, I pray that we would never grow tired of hearing that message. I pray instead that we would grow in our affection every single week, including this week. Lord, we pray that you would use this passage, which is about this kind of interesting topic, but in the end, reminds us of the grace that we need in Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would use this passage in James chapter 4 to encourage our hearts and help us to see the beauty of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, please speak to us through your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. So what is the biggest problem in the world today? Depending upon who you ask, you might get a lot of different answers to that question because the fact of the matter is that people have a lot of different opinions as to what's wrong with the world today. Case in point, if you do a quick Google search on biggest problems in the world, it doesn't take long to realize that there are a lot of lists out there in which people have offered their opinions on what they think ails the world the most. For example, according to a list compiled by the United Nations, the five biggest problems facing the world today are climate change, war and military conflict, water contamination, human rights violations, and gender equality. In a similar vein, a survey conducted by the World Economic Forum identified these five problems as the greatest risks we face today. The cost of living crisis, natural disasters and extreme events, geoeconomic confrontation, failure to mitigate climate change, and erosion of social cohesion and societal polarization. That is a mouthful, by the way. Or to give one more example, a group known as 80,000 Hours identified these issues as the five most pressing world problems. Risks from artificial intelligence, catastrophic pandemics, nuclear war, great power conflict, and again, climate change. Now, in citing those lists, I'm not necessarily endorsing any of those lists, nor am I endorsing the organizations that compiled them. I'm not even claiming that I understand everything on those lists. I could probably guess what's meant by geoeconomic confrontation, but it would just be a guess because I don't know. So my point in citing those lists is not to say that I agree with everything on them, or even that I understand everything on them either. Rather, my point is simply to say this, that when it comes to problems facing the world, people most certainly have opinions as to the greatest issues that we face. But interestingly enough, after looking at all of those lists this week, I would contend that while there are certainly some things on those lists that are real and significant problems, every single one of them misses the most obvious problem, us. We're the problem. There's a legendary story about the famed author G.K. Chesterton 
Some of the small details of the story have been debated over the years, but the essence of the story seems to be factual. At any rate, the story goes like this. In the early 1900s, the Times of London posed the following question to a series of prominent authors. They asked the question, what's wrong with the world today? Chesterton is said to have replied to the newspaper with a simple one-sentence response. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's been several years since I first heard that story about Chesterton, but it's stuck with me ever since, and I think for good reason. Because I think that Chesterton quote gets at the heart of what's actually wrong with the world today. The greatest problem that we face is not climate change, global wars, pandemics, robots, or geoeconomic confrontation, whatever that is. The greatest problem that we face today is the one that we face when we look in the mirror every single morning. More specifically, our selfish and sinful desires are the greatest problem in the world. The reason why governments are corrupt and countries go to war and marriages fall apart and churches divide and technology becomes problematic is because of one common cause, our sin. Our, self, our selfish and sinful desires, our passions are the problem. And this is the reality that James hints at in our passage today. In James 4, 1 to 6, it's clear that the churches James is writing to are facing some serious issues. There are some major quarrels that are taking place. But it's also equally clear that James attributes those issues to the selfish and sinful desires that are at work amongst the individuals in the church. And in doing so, I think he implies fairly clearly that our greatest problem is not out there. Our greatest problem is in here. That said, let's get to it. James 4, 1 to 6, if you want to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word. If you're physically able, that would be, that would be great. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the word of God as such as due our attention. The words will be on the screen here shortly. You can listen as I read or can follow along in your own Bibles. James 4, verses 1 to 6 says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, or he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now, as is often the case in the book of James, the connection between each of the verses in this passage is not immediately clear always. It's not necessarily easy to figure out, okay, how does this verse connect to the next one? Having said that, though, it does seem that there's one theme that ties this particular passage together. In verse 1, James references the passions that are at war within us. That same word passions appears again in verse 3. And when it appears in verse 3, it serves as a launching point for verse 4, which then logically flows into verses 5 and 6. So the word passions then is the word that seems to unite the passage, which of course leads to an obvious follow-up question. When James talks about passions, what is he talking about? The Greek word that's used for passions here literally means desires or pleasures. But when used in the Bible, it often comes with the connotation of selfish or self-indulgent desires or pleasures. In the context of our passage today, it clearly seems James is using the word in that way. When James is talking about our passions, he's talking about our selfish and sinful desires. He's talking about the desires of our flesh. Or to use the language from last week in chapter 3, he's talking about our selfish ambitions and our jealous pursuits. 
And it's clear from our passage today that those selfish and sinful passions are at the root of all kinds of difficulties. More than anything, in James 4, verses 1 to 6, James is pointing out the destructive and dangerous nature of living according to our passions. When we live according to our selfish ambitions, the results are disastrous. Our sinful and selfish desires are at the root of all kinds of issues. Now, in saying that, here's the difficulty. I think most of us in this room would intellectually agree that pursuing our selfish and sinful passions is a bad idea. And in that way, I think most of us would probably say the main point of James 4, 1 to 6 is self-evident and obvious. Do we even need to say it? Of course it's bad to pursue our selfish desires. But I think we do need to say it because I'm not sure that point is as obvious as we think it is, especially in light of where our culture is currently. One of the most common mantras in the culture today is that we need to be true to ourselves. We need to follow our own hearts. If it makes us feel better, we should do it. If you're not happy in your marriage, leave it. If you don't like who you are, change your gender or sexuality. If it makes you happy, go for it. In other words, the mantra of the world today is follow your passions. And sadly, this type of thinking has bled all too often in the church too. Even in the church, more and more people are convinced we just need to be true to ourselves. We just need to follow our hearts. But as a book I read this week pointed out from the Christian perspective, follow your own heart is actually one of the worst pieces of advice you could give a person. Because as the book of Jeremiah points out, our heart is deceptive above all else. And as the rest of the Bible makes clear, our natural and sinful tendencies, our passions are contrary to God's expressed will. So the idea that we should follow our hearts or be true to ourselves is a terrible idea. When we live according to our passions, according to our selfish and sinful desires, the results are disastrous. And in light of that, I would just say this. Given the mindset of our culture today, and given the attitudes that are even prevalent in the church, I would argue that although it may seem obvious that we should not live according to our selfish passions, we desperately need the reminders that James gives us in our passage today of the dangers of living according to those selfish desires. We need to be reminded that there is catastrophe waiting if we pursue our sinful passions. And so to that end, what I'd like to do this morning is simply walk through the passage here and point out three major problems with, with pursuing our selfish and sinful desires. And then subsequently, I want us to think about how we might live differently in light of those problems. As I said, let's start with the problems themselves, the problems with pursuing our selfish and sinful desires. Problem number one, the pursuit of selfish and sinful desires leads to relational difficulty with others. And so there's a horizontal issue. We see this in verses one and two. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So as best as we can piece together, here seems to be the context of James chapter 4. There are disputes and arguments taking place in the church. Now, we're not entirely sure about the nature of these arguments. What are they arguing about? What is it that they're coveting in one another that they're not getting? We don't know. We could speculate as to what they're arguing about, but at the end of the day, it would just be speculation. All we know is that there are fights and quarrels taking place. And apparently, the fights and quarrels are pretty serious. In the Greek, the words used in verse 1 for quarrels and fights are words that have origins in warfare. In verse 2, James talks about members not getting what they want, so they murder. Now, it seems highly unlikely here that murder or warfare were actually taking place in the churches James is writing to, given that James doesn't say anything else about him in the rest of the book. So in using that language of murder and warfare, James is probably just trying to make a point. 
The point he's making is that these disputes are serious. The types of disputes happening in the church are a true battle. And the types of quarrels that are taking place could lead to murderous thoughts. And if left unchecked, could eventually even lead to murder. The point is here that fights and quarrels that are taking place in the church are very, very serious. At the root of those issues, at least according to James, is one thing. Selfish and sinful desires. And so again to the question that James poses at the beginning of verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now I'm sure there are lots of answers that maybe they could have given to that question. Right? Maybe they could have said, well, circumstances are the issue. We're under stress. There's persecution. This is why we're in conflict. Or maybe they could have blamed it on miscommunication or misunderstanding. We're just, we're just talking past each other. Or maybe the disputing parties maybe just had different ways of looking at life. And they would say, well, the issue is we just were raised differently. But James doesn't mention any of those things. Instead, he answers the question he asked in verse 1 with another question. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, in asking that question, James is not really asking a question. He's not saying, well, is it this? No, he's saying it is this. He's using the question as a rhetorical vice to drive home a point. The point is clearly this. At the root of the quarrels and fights in the church were the sinful and selfish desires of individuals within the church. The problem was not first and foremost circumstantial or an issue of miscommunication or just different perspectives on life. The primary problem that was driving these fights and quarrels were sinful and selfish desires waging war within members of the church. And in that, I think there are two vital lessons for us. If you're in conflict, you can bet that somewhere underneath that conflict are your own selfish and sinful desires. And number two, if you pursue your selfish desires, there will be conflict with others. Tony and I got married in the summer of 2003. We were pretty young at the time. I was 22. She had just turned 20. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you in a very straightforward manner that our first year of marriage was hard. By the grace of God, we made it, but it was miserable. And by the way, I got permission from my wife to share that. That is an accurate statement. It was miserable. We argued all the time. And no doubt, there were all kinds of factors that played into those difficulties. We were young and immature. Neither one of us grew up in a home that had modeled a healthy Christian marriage. She was taking too many hours of classes. I was busy with campus ministry. We didn't see each other enough. We probably didn't have as much in common as we thought we did when we were dating. And we certainly had different perspectives on things like finances, intimacy, the best ways to communicate with one another. All of those things factored into the contentious first year. But you know what the real issue was that first year? You know what the heart of our problems was? Our sin. Our sinful and selfish desires. Our passions were at war within us. Each of us wanted what we wanted, and we weren't living in such a way so as to serve the other. We were trying to fulfill our own desires rather than living for Christ first and foremost, and in light of our relationship with Christ, then looking to serve the other. And it wasn't until we recognized that root issue and we acknowledged it and repented of it that things started to get better. Listen, I know it's easy to blame conflict on other things. And in particular, it's very easy to blame conflict on the other person. But what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? James would say, is it not the passions at war within you? You don't have something, or you want something. And so because of that, you murder, you fight, you quarrel. James would say our sinful desires are the core issue. Listen, I've been in full-time ministry for about 17 years now. And during that time, I've been asked to weigh in on a lot of different conflicts. Marital conflict, family conflict, church conflict, friend conflict. 
And here's the one thing I can say confidently that I've learned having waded into those conflicts over the years and having participated in my own conflicts. At the root of every quarrel and fight are sinful and selfish desires. But here's the problem. Hardly anyone sees it that way. Or at least they don't see their own sin as part of the problem. Our tendency in conflict is to blame the other person and their sinful desires. Or it's to blame circumstances, the stress we might be facing. Or it's to blame our upbringing, the way that we were raised. But again, as James puts it in verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this? Your passion's at war within you? Listen, if you're in conflict with someone right now, it's worth asking the question, what selfish and sinful desires have you contributed to the conflict? And listen, I know it's always easy to think if you're in conflict, it's always the other person's fault. And it's easy even to hear messages like this and think, well, they need to hear this. But the question is, if you're in conflict, what have you contributed? Now, in asking that question, I'm not denying that the other person in the conflict has their own sinful desires too. They might even have more issues than you do. That's possible. I'm also not trying to downplay circumstances or minimize other difficulties that might be contributing to conflict. I'm just pointing out that from James' perspective, which is ultimately the Holy Spirit's perspective, at the root of all conflict, you will find selfish and sinful desires. And this includes your own selfish and sinful desires in mind too. So if you're in conflict, I think the first step here in light of what James teaches is examine your own heart, your own desires. And furthermore, I would add this. If there's a pattern of conflict and relational difficulty in your life, James 4.1 should probably get your attention too. Because again, you might be tempted to blame that pattern on all kinds of different things. Other people, circumstances, health issues, your upbringing, your temperament, stress. But in light of James' teaching here in verse 1, if there's a pattern of conflict in your life and you're trying to assess why is that, the first place to start would probably be by looking in the mirror and by asking the question, what sinful and selfish passions am I bringing to the table? Listen, no doubt, according to James, our sinful passions are a problem. And one of the reasons they're a problem is because they lead to horizontal difficulty. They make our relationships with others more difficult. But that's not the only problem with pursuing our selfish and sinful desires. There's a second problem here. The pursuit of our selfish and sinful desires also affects our relationship with God. Now, there's an interesting shift that takes place about halfway through verse 2 and then into verse 3. So look at verse 2 here. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So whereas the first half of verse 2 is focused on our horizontal relationship with others, the latter half of verse 2 and then into verse 3 begins to be focused on our vertical relationship with God. Now again, as evidenced by the presence of the word passions in verse 3, the connecting theme between these two sections, the horizontal section and the vertical section, is our selfish and sinful desires. And in saying what he does in the latter half of verse 2 and into verse 3, James seems to be suggesting that when we focus on our selfish desires, not only does it affect our relationship with others, it also affects our relationship with God. And it seems to affect our relationship with God in a couple of different ways. It makes us less likely to approach God, and it makes us more likely when we do approach God to approach him with the wrong reasons. We see the first of those problems in verse 2, that we, when when we're living according to our sinful passions, we're less likely to approach God. Look again at verse 2, and in particular, notice the shift at the end. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Oftentimes, the very thing that we're seeking in a conflict with another person is actually something that we are ultimately meant to be found in God, or ultimately meant to find in God. For example, 
One of the reasons I think we tend to get in marital spats with our spouse is because each of us in the marriage wants to feel appreciated and respect and loved. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. I think marriage is designed to be a place in which appreciation and respect and love freely flow. Husbands are even commanded in Scripture to love their wives. Wives commanded to respect their husbands. But hear this. Ultimately, we are not meant to find our appreciation or respect or our love or our satisfaction or our joy in our spouse. Ultimately, we are meant to find our approval, our security, our significance, our satisfaction, and our joy in Jesus. Romans 8 tells us that if we are in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. And thus, our sense of approval comes from knowing that in Christ, our sins have been accounted for. And we are approved by God. Romans 8 also informs us that if we're in Christ, God is for us. Nothing can separate us from his love. In those verses, we're being reminded that our approval and our satisfaction and our joy and our sense of love and respect is ultimately meant to be found in Jesus, not in people. So if we want to feel approved or loved or respected, we should start by running to him. Lord, please help me to understand the riches of the gospel message. Help me to understand that I no longer have condemnation because of what Jesus has done. Lord, help me to feel your love. Help me to understand your approval. Help me to understand that I'm satisfied in you alone. One of the reasons we often end up in conflict with others is because we're wanting something out of them that we're designed to find in God. So practically, this means then that running to God is one of the first strategies we should employ to try to combat potential conflict. We run to him and ask for him to give us what we're longing for. Again, I think one of the reasons we lack peace and approval and rest in our relationships with others is because we haven't first turned to God and run to him in prayer. We don't have because we don't ask. We're looking for this approval. We're looking for this respect, but we're not asking the one who ultimately gives it to us. We become so inward and self-focused that rather than running to God, we run to others. Or rather than running to God, we try to fix problems ourselves rather than simply asking him to intervene. When we live for our selfish desires, it makes us less likely to approach God. We don't have because we don't ask. But also, and this is the second way in which it affects our relationship with God, when we live for our selfish desires, it makes us more likely that when we do approach God, we approach him for the wrong reasons. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So back in high school, before I was a Christian, I would still pray on occasion. But most of my prayers are what I would describe as genie-type prayers. I would pray as if God was a genie. I just need to rub the lamp and have him grant my wish. God, help me do good on this test. God, please let this girl say yes to prom. God, please help me to play well in this football game. I was praying, but I was praying with the wrong motives. I wanted my prayers to be answered so that I could provide for my own selfish desires. I wanted to advance my name, my enjoyment, my success. Rather than wanting to draw deeper into relationship with God, which is the point of prayer, I was selfishly praying so that I could get what I would want. Now, having said that, I have to admit, sometimes I can still revert back to this way of prayer. When I become focused on my selfish desires, I can start to pray those genie prayers again. But listen, this is not the purpose of prayer, to pray to try to satisfy our own sinful longings. In some cases, they're not even simple, but they're just our own passions rather than submitting to his will. This is not the purpose of prayer. God is not a cosmic genie. He is a loving father. He wants a relationship with us, and more than anything, he wants us to learn to trust him. 
And so when I pray, only to have my selfish desires met, if that's my motive, I'm missing the point of prayer. So listen, the pursuit of selfish and sinful desires affects our relationship with others, but it also affects our relationship with God. It makes us less likely to approach God, and when we do pray, it makes us more likely to approach Him with wrong motives. And the fact that it does affect our relationship with God and makes us approach Him in different ways indicates an even more serious problem. And this brings us to the third, and what I would argue is the most serious of the problems associated with pursuing our selfish and sinful desires. The third problem is this. The pursuit of selfish and sinful desires reflects a heart that is divided and ultimately unfaithful to God. Look at verse 4. This is a pretty staggering verse. In fact, I'm going to go back to verse 3 here because I think you need to hear verse 4 in light of verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I think verse 4 is one of the more startling books in all the book of James. Throughout the book, James has relentlessly reminded his readers of his care for them. Repeatedly, he's addressed them as beloved brothers. It's obvious throughout this book, he cares for them greatly. But here in verse 4, in what many would argue is the central verse of the entire book, James plainly and bluntly illustrates the true problem with pursuing our selfish and sinful desires. It demonstrates a heart that is divided and ultimately unfaithful to God. And to make that point, James uses the analogy of an adulterous relationship. In the Old Testament, the prophets frequently compared God's relationship with his people to a marriage relationship. And thus, when the people of God strayed from obedience to God, the Old Testament prophets likened their disobedience to adultery. This is something that's picked up on in the New Testament as well. In fact, you may recall that at times, Jesus refers to those who are not following the will of God as adulterous people. James is using the same language here. When we chase after our sinful desires at the expense of obedience to God, we are committing spiritual adultery. We are forsaking our spouse and instead running into the arms of another. Now, obviously, we don't want to be too graphic here, but is there anything worse than the idea of coming home to find your spouse in the arms of another? And yet, this is what James likens it to when we follow our own passions and desires rather than seeking to honor God. Furthermore, James makes this haunting statement at the end of verse 4. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, which, by the way, that would seem to describe most people, right? Most people want to be a friend of the world. This is why they give in on their convictions. This is why they pursue worldly things, because they want to be a friend of the world. But James says, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Not just distant from God, not relationally disconnected from God, an enemy of God. When we bow our knee to the cultural gods, and we give in to the world's teaching on whatever the issue is, whether it be sexuality, gender, marriage, any other issue, and when we do so in order to earn approval on social media, or because we want to be more liked and less vilified, James would not say, oh, it's no big deal. No, James would say, when we go down that road, we are risking becoming an enemy of God. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world, this is James' words, not mine, becomes an enemy of God. Verse 5 reminds us, God yearns jealously for his people. He is the groom, we are the bride. He wants a relationship with us and not one in which we are committing adultery. He wants us to himself because he knows that he is the only one that can satisfy us. And so when those of us who claim to follow Christ decide to chase after our own sinful desires, 
or decide to appease the cultural gods around us, we're not just making a poor choice. We are committing adultery against our great God, and we are making ourselves an enemy of God. And that's the biggest problem with pursuing our selfish and sinful desires. It reflects a heart that is divided and ultimately unfaithful to God. It's a pretty big deal. So the question is, what do we do with this? Right? It's obvious that the pursuit of our selfish and sinful desires is problematic. It leads to relational difficulties with others. It affects our relationship with God. And ultimately, it reflects a heart that is undivided, or excuse me, that is divided and unfaithful to God. But the question is, how do we respond to that? I think there are all kinds of ways we could answer that question. But let me just offer up three quick responses here. Response number one, we need to acknowledge the seriousness of pursuing our own selfish and sinful desires. Or maybe to say it more simply, we need to acknowledge the seriousness of our sin. We have a tendency to downplay our sin as if it's no big deal. We say things like, well, I struggle with this issue. Or I have an anger problem, but I'm working on it. Or I know I'm not perfect, but who is? And listen, all of that may be true. But in light of the language that James uses here in verse 4, it seems that describing our sin in that way is seriously and dangerously downplaying the issue. I mean, think about it this way. If I had a man-eating tiger roaming in my house, I don't know why I would, by the way, just go with me here. If I had a man-eating tiger roaming in my house and I invited you over for dinner and I informed you ahead of time, we have a pretty big cat in our house and times he can be slightly aggressive. That statement might be true, right, by the letter of the law, but it vastly understates the problem, does it not? I don't just have a pretty big cat that can be slightly aggressive. I have a tiger that likes to eat people in my house. By the same token, it might be true that you struggle with certain issues or that you probably need to work on it or that no one's perfect. That might be true. But that kind of downplays the issue, does it not? Your sinful and selfish desires are putting you at war with other people. They make you adulterous in your relationship with God. And most significantly, they make you an enemy of God. Don't pass off your man-eating tiger as a slightly aggressive larger cat. Call it what it is. Your sin is serious. Which leads to response number two. Repent, then, of your selfish and sinful tendencies. The question I would have for you this morning is, in what areas of your life are you following your sinful passions? Or maybe to reverse engineer the question, if there's conflict in your life, quarrels and fights, what sinful passions of your own are you contributing to the issue? Or, if your relationship with God feels stale or distant, what sinful and selfish pursuits might be hindering your relationship? Listen, all of us have this man-eating tiger lurking within us. Some of us, are better at containing the that some of us are better at containing the tiger than others, given the Spirit's work in our life, but all of us have this tiger. The question is, what is it? Or what are your issues? And what would it look like for you to repent of that issue? By the way, repentance is more than just saying you're sorry. Repentance is acknowledging your sin is serious, turning from it, changing because you're turning to something. And that brings us to the last and most important part of the response here. If we're going to respond to this passage appropriately, we need to humble ourselves under God's gracious hand. Now, admittedly, this passage in James is a bit of a punch in the gut. James wants us to understand the seriousness of our sin. He wants us to understand the consequences of living according to our sinful and selfish desires. He wants us to understand our sin alienates us from God. And in that way, the passage feels like a punch in the gut because it leaves us reeling and a little bit out of breath. It's discouraging. That's why I think it's so important that we end our time together this morning by looking at verse 6. Look at the way this passage concludes because this is powerful. 
Remember, he's just coming off this talk of us being adulterous people and of us being enemies with God if we're pursuing our selfish desires. But listen to what he says in verse 6. He says this, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In the context of a passage that's talking about the seriousness of sin and its devastating consequences, James reminds us in the end that God's grace is enough to triumph. Yes, God is serious about sin. Yes, he jealously yearns over his people. And yes, our enmity with God is potentially deadly. But if we come to him, if we acknowledge our inadequacies, if we acknowledge our sin, his grace is more. Right? Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to cover all of our sins. His righteousness credited to our account means that we can stand before him with no fear of condemnation. But we have to humble ourselves and admit our struggle with sin is real. Our struggle with sin is real. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so here's the good news this morning. No matter how much sin has ruled in your life, no matter how much it's ruling in your life currently, if you acknowledge that sin, and if you run to him in humble faith, his grace is more. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you've never turned to Christ. Maybe you're religious, maybe you've been a churchgoer, but you've never come to faith in Christ. His grace is more. You can come this morning and find forgiveness for your sins. If you're a Christian and there's some sin you're struggling with, it's not too late. You may be headed down the wrong path, but if you come back, his grace is more. Listen, I don't know what sinful and selfish desires you struggle with, but I know they're serious because sin is serious. In fact, I would argue it is clearly the most and greatest problem in the world. It's more dangerous and more serious than nuclear warfare, global hunger, and terrorism combined. The biggest problem in the world is not out there, it's in here. So whatever your sin struggle is, it's serious. But here's what I also know. If you humble yourself and you come to him, there is grace to be found. Grace at the cross of Jesus Christ where he paid for our sins. And then he rose from the dead that if we turn him in saving faith, we can be rescued. This is a grace that covers your sin and a grace that empowers you to live differently. So yes, we need to acknowledge the seriousness of our sin. And yes, we need to repent of our sinful tendencies. But most importantly, we need to remember where grace is found. It's found in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ. If we humble ourselves, acknowledge our sin, and run to him, he is waiting with open arms. So our sin is great, no doubt. But his grace is greater still. Church, let's run to Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is a humbling passage because it speaks openly and honestly of the true nature of our sin. Oh, but it is a hopeful passage too. Because as we're reminded here in verse 6, he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, we're told. You, you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So this morning I pray that we would humble ourselves, acknowledge our sin, and run to you. Lord, if, if there are areas here this morning where some are caught in sin, I pray that they would confess that sin and they would repent of it, but they would run to you realizing your grace is sufficient. Oh Lord, please help all of us to realize that your grace is enough. But also help us to realize the seriousness of our sins so that we can recognize how great that grace is. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.